Tonight I'd like to talk about choice and the importance of choice or the lack thereof with regard to happiness. Imagine that you go to the clothing store and you say, I want to buy a pair of jeans. And the clerk says, okay, blue or black? And you say, easy, blue. Now you feel pretty good about yourself because you had a choice and you're clear about what you want. The clerk says, okay, what size? 34, 32. So far, so good. You have a choice of sizes. And I know what my size is, so there it is. Okay, do you want relaxed fit or classic fit? Or would you prefer flares or stovepipe legs? Would you like stretching material? Do you want Lee jeans or Levi's jeans? Or perhaps you would prefer um, Dockers. Okay, now at this point I'm completely overwhelmed. I just wanted some jeans. And now I'm, I'm about ready to, to throw out my hands and leave the store because I'm overwhelmed. What started out as a good thing, I had a choice of I could either have blue or black jeans and I can have my own size, turned into a nightmare of complexity. This example comes from a book called The Paradox of Choice in which the author makes the, ca the case, and I suppose I should tell you who the author is because I have the book with me even as we speak. The author is Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz makes the case that even though we think what we really want is a lot of choice, in fact, that is not what would make us happy. What makes us happy is to uh, think that we have choices, but for that choice, for the choice to be so obvious that we really can't choose anything other than what we chose and so we're not going to agonize over the initial decision nor are we going to second-guess the decision later. I'm going to take it a little bit further still and make the case that if we have no choice whatsoever, if we realize that we have no choice whatsoever, that's where the true happiness lies. So I'd like to explore this question of whether there is a choice. It seems to me that I'm deciding on a kind of a superficial level, level, I'm taking it for granted that I am deciding to talk and I'm deciding what to talk about. I decided to come here tonight, as did you. And yet, when I look at it more closely, it's a little bit problematic. It's very tricky for me to figure out uh, how these choices are being made. Once I take away the assumption that I'm making the choices, 
it gets very squirrely. So I'll start with something simple. I can decide right now to scratch my leg. So I will. I'm scratching my leg now. My hand is moving. My fingernails are scratching my leg. So I suppose I chose to do that. And yet when I, when I look at it closely, what I see is that there's the activity. So there's the scratching. There was a thought about it. Maybe I'll scratch my leg or I will scratch my leg. But I'm having trouble pinning down the exact, when did this choice, when did these thoughts uh, become the activity? And what's the relationship between those? Did I really make the choice? Now, it's true that I can look at intention. Uh, I can, before I scratch my leg, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll scratch my leg now. And I'm feeling a little bit of, of tension arising in the muscles, so muscle tension. Okay, I'm about to scratch my leg. Okay, I'm just about to. I'm just about to. Interestingly enough, as long as I watch that supposed intention, nothing really happens. There's just the kind of potentiality for it. But then at some point, when I'm not looking, the scratching begins. We can take, we can look, we can dig a little deeper here and we can say, well, in order for me to make a choice, then there would have to be me, there would have to be a me to make the choice. And so it's worthwhile deconstructing that notion, this notion that there is an I to make the choice. My eyes are open and I'm seeing, or that is to say there is seeing. So I can reasonably ask the question, am I deciding to see? If I am deciding to see, then I ought to be able to decide not to. And yet, that doesn't seem possible. When the eyes are open, seeing seems to just happen. In the same way, I, can, I cannot decide not to feel. I can't decide not to feel this body. Sensations are arising. Now granted, sometimes I'm so dull that I don't notice. But that's not quite the same thing as not feeling. Hearing happens irrespective of my wishes. And there are times when I would very much like not to hear. But it's, it, it isn't up to me. What about thinking? Have you ever had any success in not thinking? Thinking is another sense door with equal status alongside seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. There's thinking. But I, I'm not able to stop thinking either. Some kind of mental activity happens on its own schedule.
And so not only am I not able so far to find that I'm making a choice, I'm not even able to find the I who is making a choice. We can go further still. I'm looking at the lamp in the corner and it's clear to me that that lamp is not me. Because I'm over here looking at the lamp. It's clear to me that the sounds of the cars outside are not me because I'm over here listening to the sounds. Getting a little bit closer, it's clear even these sensations that are happening on my skin, these sensations of coolness, are not me because I am watching those sensations. I must be the one who's looking. Closer still, these thoughts are going by must not be me, I must be the one who's looking. So if I directly target this I who's looking, who's supposedly looking, I can come up with some reasonable candidates for it. For example, the sense of proprioception, which is the sense of uh, when I close my eyes I can see an image of my body kind of fuzzy but accurate image of how the body is moving in space and how it's shaped. And I can feel these sensations, a kind of tactile map that make up a body image. So this is proprioception. But still, those are images and those are body sensations. And so I, if there is an I, I must be the one who's looking at these sensations and images. And I'm running out of candidates. And in fact, as I systematically investigate every imaginable possibility over a period of years and decades now, I'm not able to find anything that will stand up under scrutiny to be I. And yet there is this knowing, there's the knowing of the situation. This knowing of the situation, this awareness, is a bit of a mystery. It seems to be happening, and yet every time you look for it, all you find is more stuff, which couldn't possibly be the awareness. Now to see this, to see this in real time, to systematically deconstruct any, um, anything that might be an I or anything that might be a choice leads us to this condition of what you might call choicelessness. Now the beautiful thing about this, if I really don't have a choice and I don't have to feel bad about what's going on, whether I like it or not, I'm not doing it. 
Now, for the moment, I'm not going to go into the moral implications of this kind of irresponsibility. I'm just pointing out the uh, I'm pointing out the observable reality here. I can't be sure that I'm doing this. It's just happening, and I don't have any real evidence that it's even happening to me. And just as Barry Schwartz says in, in the paradox of, of choice, in these moments where I see this clearly, that I don't have a choice, I do feel pretty good about it. I don't have to second, second guess any of the choices I've made. It is worth mentioning that none of this negates karma. None of this negates cause and effect. And it doesn't prevent, it doesn't prevent the pain that a, that a normally functioning human being feels upon having done something that hurts other people. So it's not that we're all going to turn into sociopaths by having this insight. I might even point out that when the mind is not um, agitated thinking about past unskillful actions, that's the time when you're most likely to be able to see what I'm talking about. So in that sense, sila, or morality, or uh, skillful behavior is very much a support for the kind of happiness I'm describing. Now this awareness that apparently knows this situation but cannot be found is by definition unmanifest. And it goes by a lot of names. It can be called emptiness. It can, it can be called the unborn. It can be called primordial awareness. It can be called the unconditioned. Uh, nirvana, Nibbana, awareness. All of these things point to this thing that can't be found. And it would be very, it's very tempting to imagine that, well, I can't find it now, but if I were really, if I were really good at looking, I would be able to find it. But of course, no, you wouldn't. Because if it is unmanifest, then that's, I believe, generally understood, then whatever I see will be manifest. And therefore will not be this hypothetical awareness. So if I don't have a choice, I don't have an I, what are we left with? Well, clearly there is manifestation. All, of the, all six of the sense doors are operating. Or if you want to take a, a more unitive point of view, there is just this, whatever this is. Is this 
unmanifest? No. It might be unitive, but it's not unmanifest. To see the phenomenal world to see the phenomenal world is uh, part and parcel of being a human. And you might say that the, that the uh, default condition for most people, or what might be called the unenlightened condition, is to see the phenomenal world without considering the possibility of the unmanifest. And in fact, since the unmanifest cannot be said to exist in any ordinary sense of the word, or indeed in any sense of the word, now that you mention it, why do Buddhists keep talking about it? Why is this unmanifest such a, such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because it's fully half the picture. It completes the picture. And, if, and once we have this understanding, we can do something practical with it. So it's almost as though you're standing in an open doorway. To turn your head one way is to turn toward the phenomenal world. And to turn your head the other way is to turn your head toward emptiness, which doesn't exist. Well, we, we certainly know what it's like to turn toward the phenomenal world. That's, that's the human condition. And what we find there, interestingly enough, is dukkha. We find that it's unsatisfactory. It's not controllable. It doesn't last. I can't depend upon it at all except to be um, except to be transitory. I can depend on that. And it isn't apparently happening to anyone. So all of this is very unsatisfactory, which is one of the ways that dukkha is, is translated. It can also be said to be suffering. So if all we're seeing is this manifest world, in the, in, the, in the ordinary way that we normally see it, it's just not good enough. If you turn the other way, if you turn toward the unmanifest, so how would you do that? Well, well we have ways to do that. For example, you can listen for the distant ships that can't be heard because they're too far away to be heard. So I'm turning toward the, the unmanifest and because of that I'm turning toward something infinite. I'm turning toward the infinite. In other words, anything that is not, uh, that anything that doesn't exist couldn't possibly be finite and is therefore infinite. And in order to do this, in order to hear the ships in a harbor that's a thousand miles away, 
in order to even consider the possibility, we know going in that it, we will not hear those ships, but nonetheless we turn toward it. I must make the mind very open, very big. So I'm listening now. And the mind becomes very receptive. Infinitely receptive. And unlike manifestation, unlike the phenomenal world which can't be depended, depended upon, this supposed emptiness is absolutely reliable. You can absolutely depend upon the unmanifest to not be manifest. And there's a certain comfort in this. Now if I listen for the distant ships and I hear something and I or I experience something it's possible for me to get stuck if I lose track of the fact that what I'm listening for can't be heard. For example, if I'm listening for the sound of the ships uh, in Copenhagen Harbor from, from here in New York and I accidentally hear a ship from here in New York and I'll say, okay, that's, that's the sound of the ships in Copenhagen. Um, I can get stuck there because that's finite. So I have to keep in mind that what we're looking for is infinite. And this is the real genius of this, of this idea, this, this um, theoretical construct of emptiness, that it's so completely reliable, and it's bulletproof, it, it can't be messed up, it can't be sullied in any way, because it isn't existent. So standing in this doorway between, standing in this open doorway between the phenomenal world and the, and the unmanifest, what happens if I turn my head toward the unmanifest? What happens if I try to see this emptiness, this unmanifest essential nature of mind? What happens is more manifestation. I'm still noticing the, the phenomenal world. That's the only thing I'm ever going to notice. Everything I'm going to be aware of is always the phenomenal world. And yet, something extraordinary has happened. There's some kind of a transformation that happens in this moment. And it is this gesture, this gesture, Mahamudra, the great gesture of turning toward emptiness which doesn't exist the mind does become receptive infinitely receptive questions like is there an I don't arise questions of choice don't arise questions of is there happiness or unhappiness don't arise and lo and behold, there is happiness. There's a, a deep contentment 
that doesn't come any other way. And it's this activity of the gesture that's bringing this about. Can I choose to make the gesture? I don't know. But it happens. Now this kind of this kind of gesture is not unique to Buddhism. There are different ways you could talk about it. You could talk about this using God language. You could say when you uh, when you give yourself over, when you give over your will to God, there's the possibility of happiness. A, a lot of people would say that. A lot of people have that experience. And depending on how far you take it, um, the results will vary. If you imagine that the God you're turning over, turning your will over to, is a muscular, white-haired man from a Michael, Michelangelo painting, that's finite. That's just going to get you stuck. So that's not particularly useful, although it might be a transitional stage. But what if you imagine that God is unmanifest, pure potential, infinite. Infinite by virtue of, of not having been born, you might say. Well, then we're back to the same thing. By, by surrendering your will, by turning toward this infinity, the same thing happens. We have this moment of, of stillness and infinite receptivity. But is that, all, is that all God is, using the God language? Is God just the potential? Or is God also... The manifest world. Well, when you put it that way, if we're going to use God language, it's perfectly clear that God must also be the manifest world. And so, in some ways, God point the God language points to this more more readily, more easily than the language of of Buddhism. It's not quite so easy to understand or to to integrate emptiness and form using Buddhist language, even though the Buddhists are constantly saying it in just that way. And form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And yet, just as if there is this, uh, this infinite God, this unmanifest God, that in no way precludes the, the, the phenomenal world, in the same way, this, this emptiness that is spoken of in Buddhism pervades, suffuses, and is not other than the phenomenal world. It, it couldn't be. It couldn't be other. Now granted the concepts um, are dukkha. The concepts are unsatisfactory. They're not happening to anybody and they keep changing. But we don't have to be satisfied with that and we're not. So we turn toward emptiness in any moment. And the mind becomes still and, and big and open and soft and, 
infinitely receptive and the idea of having a choice becomes a non-issue. If you can do this even once, if you can get even one tiny whiff of, of contentment by doing this, then it only makes good sense to do it again. And by doing, it, by doing it again and again, you can snowball this understanding or this attitude into uh, a more and more abiding condition of receptivity and, and frankly, happiness, contentment. There's a lot of conditioning to unravel, and that takes time. But all along the way, you, you're never you're never more than a head turn away from, from happiness in any given moment. Now, we have all these tools for being present in the moment. We have, when things are really rough, it's possible to, um, to note, to note aloud or to note mentally what's happening, which brings you into the moment in a very robust way. There's no way to mess it up, no matter how distracted I may be. If I note hearing, seeing, coolness, tension, unpleasant, seeing, pleasant, hearing, neutral. Distraction isn't even much of a factor there. I'm noting, I'm undistracted in the moment of each noting. There's also the possibility of, of deconstructing this sense of I by going through looking at the various objects that arise and seeing that they are not I and inquiring directly, who am I or to whom is this happening? You always come up with a blank. And every time you come up with a blank, you have turned your head toward the alleged unmanifest. We've seen that there's the possibility of listening for the distant ships. There's the possibility of turning the mind toward emptiness, knowing that you won't see it. But finally, it comes to the place where remembering is the entire gig. The only thing you have to do is remember. In other words, remember to, remember to not be stuck, or notice that you are stuck, and in that moment of remembering, it's done. The mind instantly and with no stop, there's no place to stop in between you bypass the middleman and you go immediately to stillness and contentment we don't have to believe anything we don't have to know anything We don't have to believe that there was a Buddha who got enlightened. I don't know whether there was a Buddha who got enlightened. I never met the man. If we were to get hung up on that, that idea, other than just a, a kind of initial inspiration, we would that would be just a place for us to get stuck. 
I believe in the Buddha. I believe in the Buddha's teaching. Well, okay, but at some point you're just going to have to go beyond all of it. And in this moment, see that there's no choice. It's not happening to anyone. And the possibility of standing in the doorway and instead of always turning the, the head toward the phenomenal world, turning your head toward emptiness, this is always available. We can do this now.